Sego, Sewagwego. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to our Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast, focusing on Haudenosaunee cultural topics recorded on Haudenosaunee territory. Our podcasts are produced by Aboriginal Legal Services with the technical assistance of Humble Man Recording. My name is Lisa Venevery from the Mohawk Nation and the Wolf Clan. I'm the coordinator of the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name program and the host of this podcast. Welcome to the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast series. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our website, www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word Donate, located at the top of the homepage of our newly updated website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services, Toronto, Canada. This is the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast series. Welcome everyone to this episode of Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast. Today it, we have in the studio, in person, not on the phone like our other guests have been, but in person we have Dr. Beverly Jacobs, who, have, who has come to visit us and share with us her knowledge about um, a lot of different things. And Beverly is the senior advisor to the president on Indigenous Relations and Outreach at the University of Windsor. She also received the Order of Canada in 2018. And most recently, last fall, I believe, she was named the Indigenous Human Rights Monitor for the Mohawk Institute Survivor Secretariat. So welcome, Dr. Beverly Jacobs. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> Okay, and you can, when you get into, um, we get into the podcast, you can mention a lot of other different things you do, because I okay. know that the list was way too long. I know. <laughs> I wear too many hats. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what have you been up to lately? Uh, lately, I just actually just got back from Reno, Nevada. So I was asked to go out to the University of, of Nevada, Reno, to do presentation on MMIW is last week, May 5th, was the national day, mm -hmm. the uh, remembrance of, of MMIW. So they they asked me to come. I met in a community, the Indigenous communities there. They had so many events. And so, yeah, it was amazing. And I got to meet a lot of really good people. And actually, two recent, unfortunately, two recent families there in one of the communities who who's young young women were, were murdered in the community. So they rallied and support for, for the family. So it was powerful. Mm -hmm. Now, do, do they in the States, um, is it like a national organization now, like a national movement or international movement because Canada and the U S yeah, well, ever since, well, you know, the work that I did with the Native Women's Association of Canada, even at, at that time working on, on the issue, there was a there was a gap because because we knew things were happening nationally in Canada and we knew things were happening in Mexico. But there was a that huge gap in the US that we weren't hearing from. Mm -hmm. But like in I would say in the last maybe maybe 10 years, there's been more. And there, there has been more organization. There is, a, there is an organization in the U.S. now that's collecting the data mm -hmm. in both Canada and the U.S. So, so mm -hmm. it, is, um, it is now an international crisis. I mean, it was, but now it's being documented. Oh, yeah. And, and I know that... Um, as Indigenous people, we had some 
some concern with the statistics coming from the RCMP. Oh, yeah, that was bad. Yeah. And did they have the same issue with the FBI in the in the U.S.? I'm not sure. I never really got a chance to um, to talk to any of the families. It was just because it was a whole community and there was presentations and, you know, the awareness in the community. But the... Um, But the information about the policing and um, I just heard a little bit about, you know, the, the reporting that they have to do. But I didn't ask. I wasn't I wasn't able to ask, mm. you know, those kind of details. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I think we'd all be shocked when we hear the real numbers. Right. We would be totally shocked. Yeah. Um, and it's still a ongoing crisis it is it yeah. hasn't it hasn't it hasn't changed it hasn't stopped mm -hmm. it's um i think but what i think now um is that what's different from the time that i first started so which was in like 2002 i think mm -hmm. so 20 years later i can see more support at the community level like the grassroots social movements, mm -hmm. you know, like, like the walks and the rallies and the support from, from community and supporting the family now that wasn't there from that very first day that, that I met with families when I was mm -hmm. doing the Amnesty International work. And uh, that was the first time when families ever shared anything. And, mm -hmm. you know, from there, and they would say, you know, I'm not getting support anywhere. Yeah. But now, now I see the support um, at the ground level, the community level. And um, so that's really powerful. I see that movement. And even at, um, in the best case scenarios, law enforcement doesn't engage with families as they should. I've found, you know, sometimes. That was part they... of the biggest problem was, was the lack of respect. Yeah. And they're so they're so caught in their own I don't know what it is, their own mentality or their own processes and they forget about the humanity, they forget about the trauma. Forget mm -hmm. about all those things that are happening and just just and they don't understand the difference in worldview. Right. They don't. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that we really need to address and work towards is helping them, assisting um, the law enforcement in learning about our worldview yeah. Yeah. so they can understand it and maybe um, adjust their processes. I think so. Yeah. And you know, that is what's happening with the uh, survivor secretariat and there is a policing task force now that's doing the criminal investigation so they have had to learn the training. They've had to learn about being trauma-informed and learning about us, our culture. But they're still, you know, they still get caught within, mm -hmm. their, within their processes. But this is like a, this will be like a model for them to change, to, mm -hmm. to respect a different way of thinking, a different way of even of investigating, right? And having that respect and, and uh, even the conversation, even just the questions, even, yeah. you know, just the, when they gather, they're gathering their evidence for their, you know, their criminal investigation is knowing how to be better um, better equipped to to actually think about who they're talking to. <laughs> yeah, can can you um, can we talk more about the survivor secretariat because sure. it's so new and it's such a um, it's a different way of doing things, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, I've never heard of a survivor secretariat before, so this is probably the first one. Yeah, it is. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so they did uh, incorporate as a group and, and, and they are all of, you know, the survivors of, of the mush hole. And, uh, and they've been, you know, they've been, they've been activists and advocates on their own for the last how many years since oh, yeah. they started, right? Yeah. At least 30 years. Yeah. They've stuck together and, and have. really done a lot of hard work. They amaze me. They amaze me at how strong they are and how even their their understanding of, even about trauma and what they've been through, like they've experienced it. We never experienced that mm-hmm. as intergenerational survivors. They were the ones who actually experienced it and know what happened and what it what it's done to them. Um so they you know, with the the guidance and their leadership, um, they're they're able to really say to us the and the like the world really. Mm-hmm. Um, we want we don't want this to happen to anybody else. We know the experiences. We can help to make things better. Yeah. Um, and that's what they've been doing. And and they said, and we want the world to know what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as your um, um, responsibility there at the Survivor Secretary, can you just explain more in detail what your, what your role is? Sure. So, yeah, my title is uh, Indigenous Human Rights Monitor. So my task my mandate is to ensure that the rights of the survivors are respected. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of the, the, what we were just talking about, it, about that um, lack of respect, of, of trust, of policing. So because this is the first and uh, being a criminal investigation, so not even, not just having a survivor secretariat, but you know, having a criminal investigation is different than any other kind of investigation. So with this policing task force, there's there's the three jurisdictions. So Six Nations Police, Brantford Police, and Ontario Provincial Police. Mm-hmm. So they're having to work work together in their criminal investigation. And and because the secretariat is guiding is guiding it. Um, and when they had asked me to come on to do the work, um, you know, part of it is the training. So they've gone through, um, trauma informed training, um, the task force itself. So they've, they've handpicked, um, investigators. Mm-hmm. So they handpicked the investigators that they know have the respect of who we are as as indigenous people who have knowledge about the historical piece about the lack of trust so i see them as um you know as investigators who are committed to um the truth yeah and they even say that in in their in their, um, you know, in their understanding of their role as well, mm-hmm. you know. And so my task is, which is a really hard one, is I have to listen to every interview. I'm either there in person as long as the survivor wants me there. So it's up to the survivor. If mm-hmm. they want me to be there as the monitor, they're told, you know, my, my role, my responsibilities. It's up to them whether they want me there or not. A lot of them, you know, have their own um, their own protection, whatever it is that helps them to support themselves. They can bring in whoever they want mm-hmm. to support them as they're as they're being uh, questioned and asked about what they've seen yeah. or heard or know. Um, and so. Um, so so while I'm there and listening to their interviews, I listen to and making sure that their rights are being respected, right? That that they're not going beyond 
the investigation. The investigation is strictly focused on the deaths of our children in the school or those who went missing. Mm -hmm. So the questioning is about that. Yeah. Have you seen? Have you heard? Do you know? Um, and so, you know, part of part of that process for me to listen is because our, you know, how we are as a people that will share everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. We share mm -hmm. our stories. We share right from day one. So they would share like right. Um, you know, and it's um it's a it's a confidential interview. I can't share what anybody says. Mm -hmm. But I'm but the process itself is for me to to listen to make sure that their questioning uh stays within that that mandate. Mm -hmm. And if it goes beyond, that's when I say, hey, we gotta stop. Mm-hmm. And I bring I bring the issue to the um uh, to the task force, to the policing, the heads of the, the task force. And we meet to make sure that, that they stay on, on track. Mm. So, um, there's been a few issues. Yeah. Where they want it to go beyond their scope of. Yep. Yeah. And so, uh, so my task is then to bring it back to the survivor secretariat. It's up to them to say, okay, let's bring it back. Let's meet with them. So that's what's been happening. Mm -hmm. So I'm like the in-between person oh, yeah. between the task force and between that and, and the survivors. And sometimes when police are questioning, they may want to, um, you know, start interrogating someone. <laughs> yeah. Cause they're Which used is to not, that. Yeah. And yeah. that's, the, and that's where the policing needs to remember that the person that they're asking the questions is a survivor, right? They're the sur survivor mm -hmm. or someone who might have knowledge about um, what did happen in, in the Mohawk Institute. So, so that's where um, the training for them comes into place about who they're actually interviewing. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, this is a new area for police survivors. Yeah, it is. This is, this is new for, for them. It's like, it, it can, and it's also could be, which is what I keep saying. And and the survivors are also saying that they can use this as a model mm -hmm. for any victim of violence. Yeah. Right. For yeah. any, any victim as they're, they're doing their questioning for any criminal investigation. And plus the crime that they're talking about, the crimes that they're talking about happened decades ago, which right. is also new probably yeah. to police yeah. to investigate. Right. Yeah. And so they're here, they are hearing the horrific, mm -hmm. right? The horrific stories, their horrific um, experiences. Yeah. And, and also they've, uh, so the letter, so originally, I mean, what sparked, like what started all of this was a letter from five of the survivors to the Six Nations police mm -hmm. after the Kamloops, um, the Kamloops, um, survivors, right? The, the kids that were found in Kamloops. Yeah. So that was, that was the the spark for them to write this letter to Six Nations police that they want to police invest like a criminal investigation mm -hmm. at the Mohawk Institute. And so that's when Six Nations police, you know, brought in the other, other two police jurisdictions to help, mm -hmm. right? So to help in the investigation. So it's more than just like the interviews that are being done with the survivors or anyone who might have knowledge. And then there's the, the ground penetrating radar, right. That they're yeah. doing in the, and it's over, I think it's over 500, 500 acres. Wow. That's a yeah. lot. So it's going to take a long time to, yeah. to do that. So there was training, there's training involved. And community members can be trained to do that work. Mm 
Yeah. Right. So, so there is that. Then they, they've uh, also, um, you know, setting up the organization. So hiring the executive director, hiring all the coordinators. Mm -hmm. So all of that's happening too, all at the same time right now as we speak. So the secretariat's work, how long, uh, how long do you think that the secretariat's work will go on? I think it'll go on for a, a while, I would say, at least five years. Are they going to be any way connected to the museum the, when the museum opens? Um, I'm, I don't know. I know that, that uh, the, um, you know, Janice is completely involved in, in um, aware, so yeah. they're aware of what's happening. Because they they're doing they're doing their renovations and the things yeah. that, that they want to do too, um, but because of the investigation now and the the ground penetrating radar is kind of putting it on on hold for until oh, yeah. all of that's finished. So, um, so I, I know that there's also the um, the Mohawk Village the um, the park that they're wanting to oh, yeah, the establish park. too. So, mm -hmm. so all of that's all, all happening all at the same time, but it's like, it's like kind of putting it, the grounds on hold until the, the searches are done. Oh yeah. Um, I wanted to ask when you were mentioning the, the police jurisdictions who are involved, you mentioned the six nations police, the OPP and the Brantford is there a reason why the RCMP are not involved? Because the whole thing was put on by the federal government. Um, because, well, RCMP doesn't have jurisdiction here. No. So that's the reason. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, well, I guess the less, the less um, force is the better. That's true. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sure they're all very competent yeah. um, in what they're doing. Yeah, um, you know, we've talking about the stories that that are that are probably the police are hearing for the mm -hmm. first time. We've heard these stories mm -hmm. in our families yeah. before, and you know, as an intergenerational survivor, remembering hearing the stories, um, I never it never did come into my mind that um, it would ever be a real police investigation. Yeah. I yeah. just never thought it would go that way mm -hmm. and police would ever be interested mm -hmm. in hearing these right. stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It has been totally, um, it's new for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a, it's pretty, it's, I think it's very powerful and it's, it's empowering it's empowering it for the survivors because their voices are being heard now. Yeah. Like they've never been heard before. I think it's going to be really good for their healing and our healing. All of us. Yeah. But it's also a traumatic yeah. uh, process. And it's too. also being prepared. So it's preparing us um, for that. Yeah. For everything and the and and the healing and the things that we need to do, it's like we've been we've been left in this lifetime to address all of all of those harms that have happened. So those of us in this lifetime are left to to deal with that and to yeah and to figure it out because this is all new for us. Yeah, right to figure sure. out how to heal to figure out what we need to do for our families today for our kids in the future how we need to you know heal our families yeah because it was had such a devastating impact on on our emotional well-being on our uh, spiritual well-being right on our physical health emotional health mental health like there's been so much we can we can trace it right back to to the residential schools and what they did even if even if if one of our family members didn't attend it still has had an impact 
because because yeah. of the systemic processes. And I think that's what a lot of um, people may not understand. And and I know by my work in the courts, I find it. Um, I find that sometimes the court doesn't understand that no, the wouldn't. residential school affected whole communities. Mm-hmm. They they focus on the individual. That's right. Um, but yeah, it, it was entire communities by getting their children taken away from the yep. whole community. The heart. Yeah. Babies are heart in our communities. They stole them away from us. And even when we look at young offenders in the courts today, young indigenous people going through the system, um, you know, they may not even know what residential school is so they have to also learn um how it affected them and the court has to remember that it did affect them yeah yeah it's hard it is um but i'm so glad that there are people like you out there doing the work (laughs) that needs to be done (laughs) thank you um let's talk about maybe we can switch gears here a bit and talk about um the law. You are a lawyer. Yes. And you're still a practicing lawyer, right? Right. Um, when did you become a lawyer? Um, well, I started law school in 1991. Mm-hmm. Graduated in 94. So when I graduated in, in my, well, my experiences of law school were horrific mm-hmm. because that's when I was starting to learn about how the colonial legal system you know, really used law as a way to try to erase us as a people. Yeah. So every day, every day, you know, I would learn learn these these uh, these laws, and well, you know how how I was raised as Haudenosaunee and traditionally and longhouse ceremonies, mm-hmm. and I never realized really how much I was taught. Until I went to law school, yeah, you know, and 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 really seeing how uh, the impacts, and then and then my own healing, so my own healing of understanding even the residential school how that had an impact on me, um, and then my like my whole life was just like flashing in front of me with the you know violence that I experienced, and um, you know why did that happen, and then I was starting to really focus on our own ways of being. Yeah. Right? Our, because that was the strength for me of um you know understanding that my own my own upbringing, I guess. <clears throat> so so by the time I finished in in 94, it was like I am not going to practice law. I cannot see myself doing this. Um so I I uh I went and I did my master's in law and my master's in law was focusing on uh, Haudenosaunee law, the great yeah. law. Yeah. And, um, and spend a lot of time then even uh, with all of the knowledge holders. So people like uh, the late uh, Jake Thomas traveling around, he was doing the recitals then and, mm-hmm. and, um, and and really paid attention and and my uncle was there like I was there with my uncle Oliver and and uh, spent time and learned from him and he would take me to learn about the condolence ceremony and um, anyway all of that was happening and and uh, um, and then I finished my my masters it took me a while to finish because there was a lot of healing so I used also used my education to heal. Yeah. to understand what happened to me and to my family and the community even. So um, so then I finally, um, you know, was out and about and I was I started a consulting business called Bear Clan Consulting and I, I was doing most a lot of legal work anyway, but I wasn't a practicing lawyer yet. So I met, um, was doing work on Bill C-31 with Aboriginal Legal Services in mm-hmm. Toronto. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and uh, ran into uh, my friend uh, Mary Eberts, who is yeah. a constitutional guru. Um, 
in Toronto and she was helping our women through uh, like the Bill C-31 cases. And um, so when I met her, it was like, a, it was like a spark. It was like, uh, I need to work with you. And I, it was, I think within, by the time you graduate law school, you have 10 years to get called to the bar. Yeah. Otherwise you got to go right back from, from the start again. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I had to make a decision because it was like my ninth year, I think, by then. And so when I met Mary, it was like, okay, Mary, I'm going to work with you. And uh, so she, so I articled with her yeah. and got called to the bar in uh, 2003. And, um, and so that's when I started my own practice. Like I started right from day one. Mm-hmm. And were you in criminal law? No, I, I never, I never did. Um, I, I studied mostly the systems. Oh yeah. Right. And, and policy work and, mm -hmm. um, studying what, what, uh, what the law was saying or yeah. what, you know, like the case law and studying, cause that, that was one of the projects I did with with Aboriginal Legal Services was all of the Bill C-31 cases. There were hundreds of them. And can you just explain the so, what Bill C-31? Okay, so Bill C-31, that was um, um, an amendment to the Indian Act in mm -hmm. 1985. And so there were like hundreds of cases before that that was challenging the uh, constitutionality of, of different... Uh, principles of, of the Indian Act system. So, for example, um, the women who were targeted when they would marry out, they would lose their status, but the men didn't. Yeah. Uh, very patriarchal system. And, um, and so the amendment in 1985 was as a result of the advocacy of many Indigenous women to um, have their status back. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so anyway, that was a, a huge moment in time, and um, it was supposed to eliminate the sexual discrimination in the Indian Act mm -hmm. um, in 1985, but I think it caused more, it caused worse, um, and because, you know, of, of our communities and the way things work in our communities... I also saw the violence, yeah, right of um, uh, of our women returning back, wanting to return back to their home communities and being targeted for wanting to come home. Yeah, that was mm -hmm. that was sad, mm -hmm. um, and especially when when you know our men would marry out and and you know they weren't targeted, they weren't targeted for being able to stay home. You know, Their they weren't forced were out. Accepted, yeah. So that that was the internal conflict, um, and also knowing that where it came from, like the conflict came from government policy. Yeah, mm -hmm. it came from their laws um, that caused that conflict. Mm -hmm. And so, so having an understanding of why things happened the way they did, and and learning about the source of, of, um, of the conflict. Mm -hmm. The source always goes back to government and what they've done with their divide and conquer tactics. And, and we, you know, we've fallen into, we've fallen into that, um, uh, their trap. Yeah. Right. Of, of that, and, and so the, the conflict in our community continues, and um, but learning where it comes from is like to me is the most important. It's that again, it always goes back to education about learning about why things happen the way they are, and why things, even family divisions, and you know, um, just the conflicts in our community. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, about laws causing conflict. Um, and, and, and I guess comparing it to um, the Indigenous perspective of traditional laws. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about, about um, 
rights versus responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that was what I studied in, in my PhD. So mm -hmm. in my doctorate, I looked at, well, I looked at the impacts of resource development on holistic health, but the framework of it was the, the two-row wampum belt, right? So that's the source of our relationship of that nation-to-nation -nation relationship and using it as a tool to remind us about that was supposed to be a healthy relationship. Yeah. Um, and how law, colonial law and Haudenosaunee law are two of the, you know, the, what's recognized in the two row. Mm -hmm. So, so when I was doing my, my research for, um, for my PhD, and I was asking the questions about, well, what, what makes us healthy? What, what is our holistic health? And they would always, the knowledge holders would always return to, well, it's, it's our language, it's our ceremonies, it's our recitals of the great law, it's following the great law, it's uh, the Thanksgiving address and understanding ourselves within the Thanksgiving address, right? So, so and everybody would say that's our responsibility that's our responsibility as Ongahawe to to follow those and to carry ourselves as human beings because that's what we've been taught. Yeah, our relationship to all of the natural world and and um, and so it was important for us as human beings to recognize ourselves within those responsibilities that we have. But once we start talking about colonial law. We start talking about rights. Yeah. Right? They never we never talked about rights. We always talked about this as our responsibility. So that's how, how I had framed it in the in my in my my dissertation was that on their in their ship they talk about rights. So and it's always based on an individual right. Yeah. I have a right to fish. I have a right to hunt. I have a right to this. I have a right to that. Yeah. Um, but when, when as Ongwahoe, when we say, okay, yeah, I have a right, I have a right to fish, but where's my responsibility to the fish? Yeah. Or I have a right to clean water. Okay, so where's my responsibility to ensure that there's clean water? Yeah. Right. So, so, so I made it about, about that healthiness between the two, because that's how our relationship was supposed to be, mm -hmm. is about having that healthy relationship, being healthy, being aware of, of our healthiness. That was the biggest message that I, that I got out of all of the work that I did in my, in my doctorate was, um, was about the knowledge holders, the, the message was so clear, so clear, like when talking to our people, our like Haudenosaunee people, and this is also going, going to one of the statements that was made by John Mohawk. Yeah. And he said, he called it universal intelligence. Mm-hmm. Right, that when, when we talk to each other as Haudenosaunee people, when we talk about the great law or we talk about Thanksgiving, we all know what it means. Yeah. And we all know what our responsibilities are when we start talking about that. So, but we also know the impacts of colonial law and, 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 and these, these rights that have been um, brought as a result of that. So how do we make that into, into that? Um, healthiness mm -hmm. of rights and responsibilities. And also, you, you mentioned the Thanksgiving address, um, also to recognize that there is a relationship there. Exactly. With us and with the moon and with the right. sun and, and to have that gratitude for that. And to know that they all have spirits. And I think all of those elements combined 
you don't find in right colonial law. No. no, there's no there's no comparison there no. at all. There's a lot of rights, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, as Indigenous people say, you know, the young people, um, the young Indigenous people going to law school today, mm-hmm. do you think they're going to have that same experience that you did when you went to law school and in the conflict the you know Mm -hmm. or have law schools gotten better they're they're getting better um and the reason why they're getting better is is because now there's indigenous faculty yeah right and and they're starting to understand um they are starting to understand the colonization and how law was part of that process and i think it the the reason now is because of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report and the work that they did and the calls to action, because the calls to action was directed to even to law schools. Yeah. Right. So, um, so there has been a shift. Um, it's slow. Um, uh, so I was hired as a faculty faculty member at the University of Windsor in 2017. So I came back full circle from graduating from the University of Windsor. And I was teaching a few courses here and there over the years there. Um, so returning back as a full-time faculty was part of the their implementation of the TRC mm-hmm. because I'm now teaching Indigenous legal orders. And it's a mandatory course for all first-year law students. It's part of the curriculum now. And so they have to learn. They're learning about Haudenosaunee law, Cree law, and Anishinaabe law because there's three of us who are now hired. Mm. So Dr. Valerie Wabus, who's Anishinaabe from Walpole, Sylvia McAdam, who's Cree from northern Saskatchewan, myself from here, so we're able to teach it from our own, from our own knowledges, right? Mm. From from our from what we know from, and what we can teach. So, so knowing that there's also limitations and how much we can teach, um, but it's like uh, being supported by by the law school, like by the faculty, is powerful. Yeah. And when I agreed to go back to teach, I said. Um, as long as I feel safe, mm-hmm. as long as I'm, I'm safe here, being able to do this, I'll do it because there's still racism. There's still students who come in who are privileged, mm-hmm. um, who believe that they shouldn't have to learn this. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's like, it's like learning criminal law, which is part of the mandatory law, law curriculum, right? In yeah. first year. Yeah. So being supported by the institution now by saying, well, Indigenous legal orders is is the curriculum. If you do not pass Indigenous legal orders, you will not pass first year law school. Mm. So, but it's just the beginning, right? Yeah. So it's just the beginning. Um, there's other courses that's integrating uh, Indigenous perspectives, Indigenous legal orders, indigenous um, pedagogy, mm-hmm. indigenous thought into every, so in criminal law, in contract law, in constitutional law, you know, in all of, all of the mandatory courses and integrating indigenous mm-hmm. everywhere. Because <laughs> it can't be just, it can't be just the uh, indigenous legal orders. It has to be integrated within the whole Mm-hmm. So it, it's really important that um, Indigenous, we as Indigenous people know the colonial system. Yeah. But on the other hand, they don't really think it's important for them to know the Indigenous right. legal system. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, we do. So now, so now um, because I was hired uh, as the senior advisor to the now it's the whole institution. 
Oh, okay. So, so the law school at Windsor was kind of the lead into doing this, into mm -hmm. doing that work. But now um, the, uh, the president of, of the university had, um, you know, appointed me into this position. So now it's indigenizing the whole institution. Mm. And it's huge. Yeah. You'll probably be there for a while. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, my goodness. I know. Well, that's good. It has to happen, you know. And um, do you think more universities are doing this work? There is. I think, I think almost every university is doing it now. Mm -hmm. um, there is a new organization. So um, the First Nations University of Canada, right, in, in Regina, Saskatchewan, the new president is Dr. Jacqueline Ottman. Mm -hmm. And she was on my PhD committee oh. at the University of Calgary. So, uh, so they started this new organization called um, National Indigenous Senior Leaders, uh, Senior University Leaders, something like that. I can't remember the acronym, but anyway, it's all this, all the senior executive positions who are coming together to support each other. Mm. Mm -hmm. and it's huge yeah. like there's many now like I didn't realize until I you know doing this work how how much is is being done mm -hmm. across the country and it's now going to be also adding the U.S. Mm -hmm. so the the American universities as well so well look with all of this work being done do you think that there are still Canadian policies that are working against, I mean, they're still creating oh, yeah. these policies they are. that are working against the work that you're doing yeah. and others are doing. Mm -hmm. Why aren't the politicians getting this message? They know about the TRC yeah. by now. Because they're in their own, they're in their own political... I don't know, their own little political world. Yeah. And it's about power and control. Mm -hmm. It's about votes, mm -hmm. you know, about money. Um, I learned that. I learned, I saw it um, when I was president of the Native Women's Association, because I was never involved in politics before that. Mm -hmm. So it was a really huge learning curve. Yeah. Even to learn about political parties, like I have no idea. So, so once I got in and I saw how it works, I saw, you know, the, the political parties, the, um, the critics and how they, you know, how that whole process works. And then, and then starting to watch elections, to watch how they, how they work. Mm -hmm. And that's all it is, is about votes. Yeah. And and the amount of money that they can can establish in order to to do what they do. And and it's it's such a I there I can't even think of the word of of it's like they it's all about them. It's like narcissism. It's like it's like they're narcissists. Narcissism. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It's all about them. It's all about what, what, what they can do. And I heard it. Oh well, what can we do in the in how many years that they're elected? What can we do in those three years or how many years that they're in those positions? Mm -hmm. What is the priority that we can do in in these three years that I'm this in this position? Well, lately, the when it comes to politics, the the message that I hear is let's build more. <laughs> yeah, let's build more and build more and build more and take away land yeah. that um, should be used for food, right? You know, and um, I I think that doesn't make any sense. No. But um, it's all about when it comes down to it, it's, it's all about that we have a different way of looking at the world than exactly. they do. Yeah, and whole... with climate change and everything happening, I mm -hmm. would have thought that. Their their view would sort of come around to 
and they would share our view about the world and taking care of Mother Earth and because they have to live here too. Yeah. Everyone has to live together, yeah. right? So we should all have the same view of taking care of of where we live. But I don't see it. Um, you you know, would think. I don't see it. Well, so much work to be done. I better let you go and get at it. <laughs> I know. We could talk all day. I'm taking you away from the work that you're supposed to be doing. Well, I just want to say nyawe to Dr. Beverly Jacobs for joining us today on this episode of Yohat De Negasuna, the Road to Your Name podcast. It's been great, Beverly. Hey, nyawe, thank you. It was good. Okay, onigiwahi. Ona. Nyawe, thank you for listening to this episode of the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast, which has been produced by Aboriginal Legal Services and hosted by me, Lisa Venevery. There are 10 episodes in this podcast series. Let's meet again on the next episode. This has been the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast series. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our website, www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word Donate, located at the top of the homepage of our newly updated website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services Toronto, Canada. This has been the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast series. Yeah.